Hi, this is LGBTQ and A, where we get to know different members of the LGBTQ community. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and I'm here today with Cheryl Dumier. Cheryl is a pioneering film director, best known for the movie The Watermelon Woman. Stay tuned. show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my gosh. absolutely. Oh my god. I'm so excited to talk to you. Some articles call you the lesbian Spike Lee. Mm, they mm. wouldn't let me introduce you as that. Okay, good. Because <laughs> I'm more than that. Yes. Definitely. Oh my god. Definitely. Um, yeah, so the Watermelon Woman is 20 years old. Uh, I, I don't want this to sound like a backhanded compliment, but I just saw it for the first time last weekend. Didn't oh, know what to expect. Wow. And um, it was so much fun. Mm. I loved it. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I think people are really re-engaging with this remaster and it going out there for the celebration. Um, I mean, people have been watching it for 20 years, but I think there's a lot of gems and jewels in the storytelling. And, you know, looking at this wonderful, you know, uh, discovery that young Cheryl, that was me in the film, uh, um, makes about her life and, and sort of the same conditions that are happening right now, I think. Yeah, and I think, too, just like we can get caught up in like the collective struggle of mm-hmm. our community and uh, protesting and volunteer work and horrible news stories. And it was such a nice reminder that being gay is fun. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it was like a celebration for that. Definitely. And the nineties fashion. Oh my God. <laughs> I was so happy to see people in overalls. I know everybody was in overalls. It was quite funny. <laughs> it was just like, that's all we did was wear overalls and showed our bellies. Yeah. So that's coming back funny. in the style now too. <laughs> it is. It is. Um, are you surprised by like the life and legacy it's had? You know, I am on the one hand in the sense of so many people have written about this film in so many different contexts. It serves its purpose in the African-American context within cinema, queer context within its content. But then I think it really goes further to talk about the archive, you know, collaboration with artists. And then, you know, definitely within the context of the film about the development of relationships within the queer community. So I'm really amazed that it has a vitality. I think because it hasn't been done again. I mean, I think it hasn't caught on that once you sort of discover identity in storytelling, you stick with it and develop it. And I think that's what I do as Cheryl Dunier, the filmmaker, is, you know, I'm trying to make cinema, not just one movie, another movie, but a whole body of work. And so it feels right that this generated, you know, a visibility for me. And it just keeps me going. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm happy to hear you say that because uh, for everyone who doesn't know, it was the first feature film directed by a queer person of color, mm-hmm. also starring and about that. Um, but it's so much more than just like the novelty of seeing mm-hmm. a black lesbian on screen. Mm-hmm. Like that's, I mean, that is a part of it. It was the right, first. Right. It was the first African-American lesbian feature narrative film. Yeah. I mean, there have been others before that, you know, not necessarily helmed by, created by that community. Um, I mean, and I, I, what I wanted to do was highlight that community that was so important to me in the early 90s. So we do see somebody like Toshi Reagan in the film. Um, we do see Camille Pagliaro for whatever it's worth in the film. Cheryl Clark, all my influencers, it's really about that community that um, shapes an identity. Yeah. And so the discovery that Cheryl, the character, has in the film, coupled with her own, you know, the context, context of the narrative in the film, real, you, 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 it feels real. Yeah. It feels like you're a part of something. Yeah. And it, like you said, nothing is kind of like 
cop like done the same thing. Mm. It kind of has been like an, an anomaly. Mm-hmm. It didn't kick kick off like a queer movement. You know, in in the sense of the uh, works by African American lesbian feature directors, and that's what we were called then, and now are other things. Um, not much work. I mean, every year there was a couple little projects here and there. Um, Tina Mabry made a feature, but it took to 2011 for the second African-American lesbian feature narrative film that sort of got that attention um, to get out there. And that's a long time from The Watermelon Woman till that. That's shocking. And, and do we have any more work with that moniker? Yeah. And I think that's the sadder part is like, you know, we have a lot of queer subject matter um, we have a lot of television and, and cable and web series, but in the sense of the narrative features that take you into that dark room, yeah. you know, and not documentary, but narrative features in that feature format of storytelling, it, 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 not only in the African-American lesbian or queer woman of color context, which there is none, um, we have a void within, you know, pretty much queer cinema in general. People don't stay there. People tend to leave or, or it's passing ground. And I, I feel, you know, I know the players who have been in there, like Barbara Hammer and, um, uh, you know, several others that I know, uh, even Patrick Ian Polk, who did um, Punks, um, which then became a series, and then he continues to make work. Few of us, few of us stay there and want to make this cinema. Is that like a high art, low art argument? Like, I'm, I'm, obviously, this is, I'm not calling this low art, but I think that since, like, society can view it as low art, we view it as low art, and because we view it as low art, like, maybe society views it as low mm. art. Like, is that a Well, thing? you get somebody like Todd Haynes, right? Yeah. Who did Carol. And, um, you know, that's something really special within that context of the storytelling. I don't know if he, if Carol had, didn't have a queer subject in it, would he have been interested or not? But that's you know something that's out there i mean it's not the same mm-hmm. but it's different um but it definitely is a queer director dealing with a queer writer's you know text and it went you know really big but he's an anomaly i think in the yeah. sense of of that sort of storytelling and completely white cast and the completely white cast and so you know again on the color tip there's 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 nothing and so what it says to me and what it did to to Cheryl in the film and what it did to me at that moment is that's, you know, open ground there. There's so many things to do. And I think the the high art, low art things is how do I do it? You know, how can I, you know, fund a a project that gets that visibility? It's because you can make the work right now. Anybody could pick up a camera. Yeah. um, But how do I get it out there? And I think that's what people struggle with. Gotcha. The 2011 one was that D. Reese? D. Reese's, yeah, Pariah. Uh She's still working. Oh, yes. I mean, Bessie, she, you know, got wonderful attention with that. So that's another... Uh, you know, anomaly. There's few, but in the sense of, again, a cinema, we we need to, you know, people need to come back. And I, I think there is a coming back with folks like Kimberly Pierce. I, I know they're working on a project and um, Jill Soloway is working on other projects that have queer content. Um, uh, but again, I'll, I'll talk about it again on the color tip. Um, we don't have POCs supported. We don't have POC visibility. And it's every year or two that a project comes out, it might get distribution, it might not, and it disappears, and the maker disappears. Yeah, because I've seen other like feature films, but and with people of color, but they're, they haven't been like striking lightning. Mm-hmm, they're not mm-hmm. like I saw like Suicide Kale did a mm-hmm. lot of the festival circuit last wonderful, year. Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, project. fantastic. Mm-hmm. And but it just um, it doesn't get the ride release. Right, right, and 
people tend to make these transitions into, you know, I want to do web, you know, I want to do some sort of streaming work, I want to do whatever, and trying to come to, you know, this city, you know, Hollywood to do that work, which is great. Work is work. Making cinema is making, you know, making movies is making movies, making your statement in that genre and field and, and, and format is great. But again, do we want to leave these holes with great storytelling? I mean, their audiences are hungry. Yeah. I, I still feel that we can, you know, fill a dark room at a film festival or, you know, at a theater i.e. the Watermelon Woman just did a theatrical run at the Metrograph in New York. A theatrical run with a 20-year-old film, and on the opening night, there was a, a crowd. And I'm just like, what? Hold it. I'm getting back to work again, you know? I'm going to continue uh, and, to work. Yeah, and I like think that has to be because it's not like a, a tragic story. Mm, it, mm-hmm. Like, again, like it's just fun. Mm-hmm. Also, the hottest sex scene I've ever seen. Uh-uh. And I've seen porn. right. Um, really i don't know um michelle crenshaw did a wonderful job shooting it she also was involved in the restoration process process um we had the wonderful my wonderful collaborator um alexander uhas involved who was um actually my baby mama too we're not a couple anymore but we have kids together and um but came back in to help with that and then mark schmolowitz who's a great documentary producer coming in to help me with my narrative production and and now we're like a creative team so we're working on this one he was so happy to you know bring this back to life and do this justice and so he fundraised he found like film festivals i mean i can't believe toronto international film festival dropped money and support for this film to be restored so it shows you that it's not only just a good queer film but a, a film that needs to be preserved and that's where the honor comes in my heart it's like wow, I did something for the, the world that I love, which is cinema. And yeah. I found a place in it. It, it. Yeah, it's the movie that you are most known for. Mm-hmm. Is it the movie that you're most proud of? Yes, on some level. But I think my second project after this one, called Stranger Inside, um, that I did with HBO, it was the first one up for the HBO Independent series that was in you know the late 90s, early 2000s. And that one, I really wanted to like bump it up a level. It was the HBO under Colin Callender. So it was a whole other realm of HBO, not the HBO today. And I had the free reins to make a drama about a mother-daughter reunion set in a woman's correctional facility. Yolanda Ross plays the daughter. Um, of course, there's tons of queer content, hot sex scenes in prison. I mean, what we, you know. um, and uh, she went on to win the Gotham. Um, award for her best, you know, for performance and performance, and I get nominated for an Independent Spirit Award for Best Director. Wow! So that, you know, knowing when you are supported, you know, you have distribution sort of worked out and visibility. You know, that project it still rocks today. I mean, I get letters from and emails from people who are incarcerated, have been incarcerated, and are like, "Thank you for that work. That really." touched me that really touched my story so when those things happen too you know that you hit you hit you hit a gold mine in in how you tell a story yeah and what you choose to make a story about that was made by hbo is that on or hbo go you know what it's so interesting and hopefully maybe this reaches some people um because of the shifts in hbo certain things have fallen through the cracks this is one that's not on hbo go um, Yolanda and I and the other producers, um, actually Michael Stipe was a producer on this project. Um, we've been trying to figure out how HBO will put this on HBO Go. So check it out. It's actually on YouTube. So that means nobody gets compensated and you know nothing really happens. Yeah. Um, but it's out there to be seen. And, you know, write in. I mean, it's your response, obviously. 
you know, we can see what America can do when they get involved. Yeah. Um, so if you want to see this on HBO Go, which I think is a really important, you know, let let HBO know in a you know a little email or whatever and say where Stranger Inside. We've been doing that, and 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 maybe there'll be some more of effect. Yeah, totally. You you mentioned the sex scene in that too. Um, are, like for like Watermelon Woman, did you go into it saying like like let's knock their socks off? Yes, really. <laughs> I mean, again, it came from invisibility and wanting to see a sex scene where somebody like myself would be interested. And I think we can pretend and and fantasize. I mean, that's what watching porn and sex scenes are about. They sort of stimulate. Oh, that could be me. And having watched queer cinema or LGBT cinema up up until Stranger Inside and up until actually The Watermelon Woman, there were no bodies, brown bodies, involved in um, sex that I could identify with. I'm not saying that there weren't. So me doing it made that happen. And I do get a lot of people saying, thank goodness you did that. I hadn't seen anything like that before. And that body looked like my body or, you know, dealing with the dynamics that were going on. So I continually love to... You know, it's it's a, it's a reality, our, our sexuality. Yeah. I mean, aren't we gay? As Samura says in the film, uh, we're lesbian, Cheryl. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, there's a lot to jokes in it about that. She says that in the uh, VHS rental. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Mm-hmm. It dawned on me watching that you must have shot it on film, too. Just, it feels so We foreign. shot it on 16 and um, actually um, VHS, yes. Yeah, so uh, I think it was beta, one inch. So it's these formats that don't exist really anymore. And... We were right at the beginning of sort of, we had to do, you know, edit on like an Avid or something. I don't remember what format that we edited on, but it was just when, you know, analog digital was changing and it was so difficult to pull it together. That's where the budget, you know, sparked was in post. Really? Um, $300,000 for something that if you shoot on video right now with a film look should be something like Tangerine, which is like was very inexpensive, you know, to do. So... If people want to do this sort of story, storytelling now, do it on an iPhone. How did you raise that much money back then? Mm. This is pre-Kickstarter. Pre-Kickstarter. Pre-cell phones. I mean, we didn't even couldn't even leave messages like that. I guess they were answering machines. Um, yeah, it was interesting. I, I sort of got in the post mode where you're like, we have no money left. Um, and I said, well, let me call everybody I know and ask them for like a dollar or two. And so you see in the credits of the film... All the people who donated. Yeah, it's a long list. It's a long-ass list, which I think is quite funny. Excuse my French. Um, and you get a snapshot of the supporting community at that point. So you see people like Christine Vachon's names on there or Ruby Rich's names on there, others who are involved in queer cinema. And you're like, oh, my God, I don't even, you know. So for me, the pre-Kickstarter moment of support is interesting. It's just so amazing to see... We need community to to make work. Wait, I'm sorry. You raised three hundred thousand dollars by calling people. Um, no, oh, okay, okay. we we raised probably about like my fact checker is right, off. right. Fact checker. <laughs> um, we raised probably about ten, ten. You know, something to get out of post. So each phase of production really was a big, you know, amount of money. And you know, we our editors who are executive producers, you know, donated or you know, changed that bill from. You know, we'll take executive producer and, you know, you won't have to pay us, but this is how much it costs. Yeah. Um, but I think what the fun part about it was, was that I did apply for a grant uh, from the National Endowment for the Arts. And um, that's where we got the money to start. 
Huge. Yes, huge. That, that caused some drama at the end. It caused a little bit but, of drama, just a wee bit. It's good publicity, though. It was good. It was it was shocking to me to to hear and watch the footage of uh, Peter Hoekstra on the floor fighting with Sheila Jackson Lee over my film, and um, then seeing Alec Baldwin on the steps of you know the house talking about this film and trying to protect the National Endowment for the Arts and mentioning the film. I'm, I'm so blessed to have won that battle. The NEA didn't. Um, that grant doesn't exist anymore. But what was so interesting to me was that I was silenced, like the watermelon woman. I did not get to stand up and represent, which I don't think would happen today. I do think that today I would probably, you know, have... My face, you know, there would have been a face to the cause. Oh, because they're debating the money that they've already given you and they have not called you to defend it. Not at all. That's yeah. wild. So, I, I, it, you know, weirdly it became this ironic watermelon woman, watermelon woman, watermelon woman, Cheryl thing. But, you know, it happened. Yeah. So is this kind of all why you've taken a step back from commercial filmmaking? You know, um, hmm. I think when I made the film My Baby's Daddy um, with Miramax which was my last commercial production, I realized that's not what I set out to do. You know, I set out to, and I, I make this difference, like commercial production is about making movies, making money, you know, M&M, um, selling seats, and those compromises that you have to make as an, an artist are ones that you are making because you want to play that game. I didn't necessarily want to do that when I started as a filmmaker. I wanted to make messages, change lives, engage with community and, you know, create visibility, um, create agency for people who look like me and, and having media that matters that way. So I had to pull back after that one and really rethink the process. So it took me a couple of years to, you know, find the space to come back to storytelling. And I, I go back hard with this film called The Owls, Older, Wiser Lesbians. Um, and that was a fun project to do, but it was done completely collectively Gwyneth Turner's in it also again, V.S. Brody, um, Lisa Gornick, um, and shot with a group of us um, wanting to really bring back the community, get, you know, get offline where, where we were just not even just on our phones, we were online, and create community again. So the film really has this buzz. I don't think people see it that much. It was nominated for a Teddy Award. I think um, The Kids All Right won that year. Um, but it, it, it got out there and I think it's going to have a resurgence now because it is sort of like the, the follow-up piece of the watermelon woman. I, I've heard that phrase in pop culture owls. Mm -hmm. Did you create it though? Mm -hmm. Maybe? Mm -hmm. No. The story goes, and you'll love this. I was at, um, the Lexington, which is now closed with a friend of mine, my oldest friend, Paula Cronin, who, hey, Paula. Um, and we're sitting there and this young bartender comes over and she's all like, Hey, you know, what do you guys want? And we're like, I don't know. Oh, you know, generally the owls, like, you know, happy hour, this kind of beer. And we're like, owls? What's that? Oh, older, wiser lesbians. And we go, uh -huh. eyes pop out. Like, when did we become owls? You know, I thought we were like baby dykes or whatever. I mean, so many gender identities and transformations through it. So we were like, okay, Paul, I'm going to make a film. I am not going to be left an owl. Let's kill a baby dyke. So um, we, you know, the film is about sort of Patricia Highsmithian, uh, two couples, two lesbian couples end up killing a baby dyke. And we, we, I won't tell you what happens. 
Okay. <laughs> you're also in that one. Yes, I am. Uh-huh. You, you've, you're like a filmmaker, mm-hmm. and you've been in a lot of your films, though. Mm-hmm. But do you have like acting aspirations? Like, will you keep acting your work? Uh, you know, it all depends. I mean, I think the facilitation of, of having no actor as a, a, a graduate student with my short films was why I like peered in She Don't Fade and The Potluck and the Passion, and I just sort of wanted to play on that. Uh, sort of more arty way of, of storytelling. Um, my last production, my last feature, um, Mommy is Coming. I play a cab driver in a you know a satirical way. That's my sort of adult comedy. Um, you know, I, I'm happy behind the lens right now. I, I think it's more important to empower sort of new bodies and images. And so that new production that I'm making called Black is Blue, um, which we're shooting in the spring, um, I don't think uh, if I do, I'll do like a cameo walkthrough, and you yeah, know, you'll have to find where is Waldo type of thing. Yeah, do you, uh, do you mind giving like the brief synopsis of Black sure. is Blue for everybody? Yeah, Black is Blue was a short film about a black trans man living in Oakland and his reunion or, or, or uh, reengagement with a woman who knew him when he was uh, a woman, and so there's a conflict there. Um, the film doesn't end nicely as a short, um, but it does the Dunyamentary thing where it's interjected with talking heads. And you get to meet some wonderful people in that process, the, uh, Kingston Faraday, who plays Black, um, and all the other cast members. So after winning, like, I don't know, five, ten awards at film festivals, like I was like, wow, a short? Really? Hmm, I'm going to keep making shorts. Um, and uh, thinking about, like, what, what what's needed here in Oakland, because that's where I live in Oakland, California. Yay! Um, nobody's talking about lives here. Nobody's talking about the gentrification's happening. Nobody's happening, talking about this magical queer POC bubble that we live in here. So I wanted to put a spotlight on that. So the film is about a, a black trans man and a black trans woman who fall in love in the tech, you know, fallout gentrification world of Oakland. Um, and there is an AI bot character named Listen that the the blue character made as a companion and there's not a happy ending, um, but it does get into this great conversation about AI, the gendering of AI, the, the coloring of AI, um, and what, you know, why aren't queer POCs in the tech world and, and what the fallout might mean. And then I throw in a little film noir. So you get a Sunset Boulevard type of flavor, too. Is that it? That's it. That, that Those simple things, yeah. I'm kidding. Um, mm-hmm. You're going to shoot that next year? We're shooting in the spring, yeah. Wow. And we have some wonderful folks coming in. And I, and this is what I'm saying about, like, I don't need to be in front of the lens. There are tons of wonderful YouTube stars, Vine stars, you know, Twitter stars. Um, we're talking to Juliana Huxtable, who's a wonderful, I mean, just... At artist and diva and so perfect for, for playing a part. It's not about me anymore, you know. Yeah. And, and, and I really do want to be a director who, and an artist and a producer who paves the way for that new talent and new identities and new voices to come to the screen and have this opportunity to be on the screen. So we're, I'm really looking at new talent for this project. That's so exciting. I'm shocked to hear you say that about Oakland because everyone I've talked to is leaving San Francisco. Because they say the, uh, wow. the arts community is dying, they can't afford to live there, and um, kind of artists and queer people are leaving in mass. Is that not? Your They're experience? leaving San Francisco, but everybody's moving to Oakland. Oh, I mean, really? I think there's a lot. Of, there's a big move to Oakland. A lot of people are being priced out of the Bay Area um, in general, so there is that move. But um, Oakland is a magical space. Really, um, I think for me, as a, you know, a, a POC queer active person. 
I mean, Black Lives Matter. I mean, everything blows up in that soil there. Um, it, it has roots way back to the Panthers and, and even thinking about their, their um, uh, uh, friendships with queer community at that point of, of color. So um, we're really talking about this soil in Oakland and this community of color in Oakland um, and the East Bay in general that nobody really – I mean, we live our lives. I, I don't see any other place in America – where, as a person of color who's queer, I can have agency, I can have community, other than Brooklyn. Um, but there's, those are the only two cities. This is fascinating. You know, so it's, it, it's like a, a harbor-safe city. Where, where else would you go at this point yeah. um, to, to live your life and, and be who you are as a gender queer of color without looking suspect? Um, you know, we, we're dealing with OPD and arrest and, you know, sort of nationally what's happening to our bodies and um, trans people of color and, you know, et cetera. But um, we fight back and we, you know, we were totally activists, totally committed in that community. And nobody's making films. So I'm like, OK, let's go. You kind of, it seems like you keep finding the stories that are not being told at all. Mm-hmm. And like, that's your focus. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and more so in the watermelon woman going back through our history and finding out that it just hasn't been documented. It just makes me wonder, like, what else are we missing? We're missing everything. And yeah. uh, we're missing. I mean, we only get a pinch of storytelling that we believe. Um, we believe in the happy ending. We believe in the magical Negro queer character you know, of color, of not of color, of Asian, of uh, whatever, who appears in one of these shows or appears in any of these streaming series. We believe this. We believe in uh, the way the courtroom drama works. We believe in all these things because that's all we've been fed. Yeah. And I think that we need to, especially if we believe in different lives and different storytellings, we need to be putting those out there and changing the way stories are told. So that's why I play with form in my work, you know, and that's why The Watermelon Woman looks the way it does. Most of my work really kind of pushes that boundary. But there's still a way to tell a story with, and there's still a way to be entertaining. And, um, you know, I'm I'm committed to doing that and committed to educating folks about that. I teach at San Francisco State University, and I'm amazed that more and more students are finding out that I'm there, graduate students as well as undergrads, and they're coming to, like – you know, learn how to, like, break the form, you know, break this monster that we call, like, storytelling, that we believe, because that's the only way that we're going to make these changes right now. Um, If we see things told differently, if the writers are not writing the same white bodies that are, you know, queer-ish or straight bodies that are pretending to be queer, we, we need to change it on the page all the way to behind the camera and in front of the camera, where yeah. we give those people, you know, a chance. Casting needs to change. Um, so there's so many things that, if we do them on a small screen and small scale, and a lot of us do them, you know, maybe they'll have an effect on the bigger screen. And we're starting to see that. Laverne Cox is, has a show. You know, it's, yeah. it's it's happening, but really on a minuscule way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think just with. Like, we're starting today, like, making our history, just because, like, I remember being flabbergasted when I read about Berlin in the 40s and how liberal it was. Oh, my God, yes. And I was like, why is nobody talking about this? I just think that, like, everyone is looking for, like, where they fit in, queer or not, and hearing about our histories, going back to what you do, seeing yourself on screen, it lets you know, like, 
not to get like mushy, but like you're not as alone. You're not, you exist. Yeah. And I think there's so many young people who don't think they exist. Um, you know, especially in this moment where social media is the only way that you exist and there's no, nothing outside of that for some young people. Um, and I, 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 you know, my kids who are very social media active, my, my, um, my kid Simone, who's a they, um, very much about the community that they have found online and, and cosplaying and all this and that. But getting out into the real world, I think it's a challenge for them sometimes, finding those real people. And I'm not saying that they have that issue. They do have a ton of wonderful friends, and they're able to engage across the Internet. Um, but I do think that for, you know, it's a lonely place. Yeah, and especially since gender nonconformers have always existed that word's mm-hmm. new but they've, they've been around forever mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and like we need those reminders we need those reminders and we need to like see warm bodies again <laughs> you know and we know you know we need to get off the porn and you know or see porn in theaters that's why i didn't uh, mommy is coming that way really yeah i was like you know why not let's sit back in the theater i think annie sprinkle was the one who put me up to the test she's like make something that people could go out to the theater again and, and watch and yeah and sit down so it was funny when the film showed at the Berlin Film Festival. Um, the theater's packed. Um, the first, you know, adult sex scene comes up because it's a narrative. It's comedy. It's a slapstick comedy, but with you know, it's in a porn format. Um, and the first sex scene, and the second sex scene, and the BDS scene, and you know, literally by the end of the, you know, the last sex scene, by the end of the thing, there's like 15 people left in the theater, and I'm like, oh my god. <laughs> Um, but you know, I think we're uncomfortable with certain things that we think we should like have on our laptop and, you know, close down and it's, I think it's okay. I think it's okay too. I think it's okay. But I also think we can get out there and, you know, have, have a conversation about our sexualities. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And seeing like people who look like us in all manners of storylines, I'm obsessed with orange and new black, mm. but I don't know that it's that helpful to see, only see queer women of color on screen incarcerated. Totally. 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 And, and can we do anything else? You know, <laughs> that's the whole thing. Can we run, you know, I mean, Issa Rae's thing is, you know, about a, a an African-American woman, um, funny and in, in, in many different, you know, shades, um, you know, the Shonda Rhimes, you know, empowerment right now. So we're definitely, this is the moment to see women of color um, in their varied backgrounds. Uh, there's so many other spaces in between, you know, um, the legal world or the, the cop world, is where we see these strong women of color, um, not necessarily any of them queer, um, but what's all that space in between? Where all those storytelling lives that we could, you know, latch onto? Histories, present, past, you know, all these dead bodies on the ground. Why aren't we telling those stories? So I'm there to like charge people, like just tell a different story. Yeah, just absolutely. Um, I think that's like such a great place to leave it off at. Yeah. Yeah. Um, thank you for coming in. Where can everybody find you online if they want to read more about you? CherylDunier.com. Great. Um, that's my name. And if you want to find out about San Francisco State and some of the work that we're doing there, we have a queer cinema institute. Um, look at Cheryl Dunier, um at sfsu.edu and you'll you'll see what's going on at uh, State and and how young makers are making work, new work. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you. You're welcome. And you can find all of our other interviews on iTunes, on YouTube, and to everybody who's leaving comments on iTunes, thank you for that. Keep that up, please. (laughs) We'll see you next week. Bye. 
from executive producers Maria Menunos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire AfterBuzz TV staff. We would like to thank you for listening to the AfterBuzz TV network. To watch or listen to other after shows and post comments or questions, be sure to visit AfterBuzzTV.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of AfterBuzz TV. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of AfterBuzz TV or its owners or principals.